بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين الذي أسبغ علينا نعمه أسبغ علينا نعما غير منقطع منقطعة وأفضال وأفضال غير معدودة وهدانا إلى الدين الحنيف دين الحق دين الإسلام فوفانا حقنا وهدانا إلى صراط مستقيم فوفانا حقنا وما فوفيناه إن الإنسان كان ظلوما جهولا ونصلي ونسلم ونبارك على محمد النبي الأمين الكريم المهدى رحمة للعالمين We glorify the giver of all God who gives God who is the first and the last, the one and only, the source of all goodness, the source of all light, the source of all guidance, who gives us endless blessings every day of our existence, every minute, every instant. But we human beings are often oblivious and forgetful, and we often take so much for granted. And we call and pray for peace and blessings on Prophet Muhammad, the final prophet, the prophet of mercy and justice and compassion and all the prophets from the very beginning until the last messenger of Allah, Muhammad Muhammad was a moral example, an ethical example unto humankind. Like a beacon in the light. Those who do not understand the moral guidance and the moral example that the Prophet, the final Prophet Muhammad set for all of humanity lose so much because they cannot truly be guided to the path of Islam. Subhanallah wa lahu alhamd. Subhanallah wa lahu alhamd. Al-Mu'ti 
والآخذ سبحان الله who gives and takes last week I started the khutbah by sharing the news that in a matter of a few days I've lost practically all my hearing and now after a number of steroid shots in the ears and MRIs and uh, ear specialists and neurologists and so on Alhamdulillah I, I have not suffered a stroke I don't have a tumor um, but sudden hearing loss is a reality and in my case it looks like it's going to be, alhamdulillah, permanent hearing loss, um, where you suddenly just become a different category in life, from the hearing to the unhearing, the category of the functionally deaf. And of course, the natural thing, is to reflect upon loss because the nature of human beings is that pettiness where they do not reflect until they lose. So many people do not reflect upon their families until something happens that makes them lose their families. So many people do not reflect upon the blessing of a stable job until something happens and they lose the blessing of a stable job or a stable paycheck or having their children safely asleep next to them in the next bedroom while not being worried about whether their children are going to be alive tomorrow or not whether their children were going to be abducted or not, whether their children are going to be killed or not. So many, so many examples. We don't reflect upon something until we lose it. And loss educates and humbles. There are those who lose and they become angry and ask the question that can never be answered and will never be answered. Why me? Well, why someone else? It's essentially and basically a selfish question. Why me is a selfish question. Well, why anyone else? Why anyone else? The fact is, it is you. And the fact is that since you have been chosen, what do you do with the loss? I am among those that never 
reflected upon the blessing of hearing. That's my fault. I've often reflected upon the blessing of sight and often reflected upon the blessing of taste, even the blessing of smelling. But the blessing of hearing is something that I was among those who always took it for granted. Until suddenly you are introduced to a bizarre new world. A world in which trees don't rustle, birds don't sing, a dog or a cat can creep up behind you and you can't hear them. People can talk to you and you can just continue on walking. You don't have to be bothered with the noise of music coming from another room. You don't have to be bothered with the noise of a noisy TV or a noisy radio. The world is eerily silent. Eerily silent. A very interesting thing happens when the world becomes eerily silent. You have to start listening. There's a voice that you cannot shut off. That voice somehow continues to speak in your head and make all the noise in your head. And that's the noise of the self. When the world becomes eerily silent, you confront the self. And when you confront the self, you truly start reflecting upon what you're made of. What is the self telling you? What does it entertain you with? What does it keep you busy with? You're no longer listening to distractions. You're no longer listening to stereos, radios, computers, YouTube, nature, whatever. It's only the self. And what does this self tell you? That is the blessing. That is the blessing of what Allah gives and takes. An amazing educational opportunity. A glorious educational opportunity. An opportunity to listen to what is going to testify against you or for you in the hereafter before it does. In the hereafter, every part of your senses will testify. Your eyes will testify and will say, this is what he or she did with us. Your ears will testify. Your tongue will testify. Your hands will testify. Every part of your body will testify in truth and say, this is what he or she did with us. Well, this is an opportunity to hear the testimony before it's too late. That self, when you listen to it, either exposes 
a petty, weak, anxious, greedy, short-sighted, ignorant person, or it challenges you to rise beyond and to look into the self to find nothing but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so that you are not listening to yourself anymore but the voice that comes through in the midst of the eerie silence is nothing but the voice of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and if the voice of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala comes through this eerie silence there is not a moment of loneliness. Not a moment of loneliness. And not even a moment of loss. What loss? If the opportunity of your ears going silent only opened the door for the voice of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to come through more clearly, more purely, more beautifully, then what loss? What loss? There is no loss. There is only supernal beauty. Sublime. Sublime. Reflect. Don't be like me. Don't be like me. Wait until you lose to appreciate and to reflect and be grateful. Think about every sense that Allah has given you. Think about every moment, instant, you use that sense. How are you using your eyes, your tongue, your brain, your time, your hands, your feet? How are you using your stomach? How are you using your ears, obviously? Are you using it? In a way that when it, it testifies in the hereafter, it will elevate you or will it degrade you? It is as simple as that. It is as simple as that. That is the power of religion. You see, some people sent me videos, for instance, of people infected with the corona virus in some countries. And those infected are so angry about their affliction when they get on an elevator, they start licking the buttons, hoping to infect others. Or they spit on police officers or spit on passerbys. Of course, if you think 
everything is by chance. And when an affliction bears down on you, your response is, why me? And there is no answer to why me. Then you say, why don't I share the misery? Every person who has gone in public and shot innocent people and then killed himself thinks that way. I am miserable, let others suffer. If I am sick, why should I die alone? Let others die. But what does religion do? Religion comes and says, it is not all about you. And it's not chance. And it's not just happenstance. And that there is someone who sees you and holds you accountable all the time, everywhere. And that you cannot allow yourself to become at the most base level because you are elevated by the voice and the sight and the reality of the divine. If religion doesn't do that, then it is not religion. If it doesn't elevate you into beauty and make loss an opportunity for elevation, not degradation, then it is not religion. Then it is not religion. This is the essence of everything. The nutshell of all wisdom. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah, Alhamdulillah, I thank Allah for what Allah has given and Allah has taken. What Allah has taken, Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. Repeat it. Repeat Alhamdulillah in your life every second that you can remember. Because when you acknowledge your gratitude, at the same moment you do that, you also become cognizant of your own faults. And you aspire to be better. And that is what Allah wants for us. That is why Allah told us that Allah la yardalana kuf. Allah does not accept kuf. And as I said before, Kuf means ingratitude. The moral issue of ingratitude. Allah tells us in the Quran, I do, I, I do not want for you to be an ungrateful human being because you will become an ugly human being. And may Allah always guard us against ugliness and especially ugliness in the name of faith. قولوا قولي هذا واستغفر الله لي ولكم صلى الله يسلمك بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على محمد خاتم النبيين وعلى آله وصحبه ومن اتبعوا بإحسان إلى يوم الدين
reminding of ourselves reminding ourselves of the essence of what Islam is when we say Islam is rahma lil alameen a mercy unto humankind is so critical especially in a day and age in which we muslims have allowed ourselves to be so confused so confused about the message that we carry to humanity that so many Muslims around the world, even if you tell them something as straightforward as Muhammad is a moral example unto humanity, they're not sure. They sort of, you know, what, what does that mean about the Sunnah? But, you know, I heard this, but I heard that, but I heard this. Islam has been demonized around the world. It's as if Bosnian genocide wasn't enough. Why did the Serbs slaughter and rape thousands of Muslims? Because they said Muslims are bad, jihadis, and they need to protect Europe from the evil of Muslims. And at the time, some of us might have thought the genocide, the Bosnian genocide was so horrific, it is enough. Then, the unbelievable genocide of the Rohingyas. If you read the literature, the same ideological tropes that were used to slaughter the Muslims in Bosnia are being used, were used against the Rohingyas. We are slaughtering the Rohingyas to protect ourselves against terrorism and against Islamic violence and against Islamic jihadis. We had Chechnya, another horrific genocide against Muslims. Why to protect against Islamic jihadis? Then, the Uyghur Muslims in China, China's horrific concentration camps against Muslims were justified as a war against terrorism to protect ourselves against jihadis. Then, Kashmir and India's horrific war against Kashmiris is justified as a war against terrorism to protect ourselves against Islamic jihadis. Then, now, the fascist, nationalistic Hindu government in India commits another massacre in Assam and is building concentration camps for Muslims, taking its example from China, and again, all the material you read coming from the, the fanatic, nationalistic, fascist Hindu government 
says this is necessary to protect ourselves against Islamic jihadis. But the part, the part that burns the most is that Saudi Arabia and Libya and Egypt kill civilians left and right in Libya. And they say this is a war to protect ourselves against Islamic militancy and Islamic jihadis. What they call political Islam. (coughs) Their genocide in Yemen uses the same exact dogma that were used by the Serbs against the Bosnians, that are used by the Indians against the Kashmiris, that are used by the Chinese against the Uyghur Muslims, that were used, that is used by the Russians against the Chechnyans. They use the same exact dogma, copy and paste, to fight a war against what they call political Islam and Islamic jihadis. I wish it was just the government of Saudi and the Emirates and Egypt. The problem is not that that's just these governments, but that these governments are served by an army of mullahs and imams that legitimate and justify their murderous language their Islamophobic language. The problem is that colonialism confronted an ideology of resistance within the Islamic civilization. This ideology of resistance to colonialism was often called jihad. Colonialism did everything it could to demonize Muslim resistance, to demonize the language of jihad. So whether you resisted for a just cause or did not resist for a just cause, the entire propaganda machinery of colonialism was to say resistance is wrong. The problem became more acute with what Israel did to the Palestinians and the desire of Palestinians and Muslims to resist Not just what the Israelis did in Palestine, but the colonization, particularly of Jerusalem. But as time moved on, our great Muslim leaders realized that there is one problem that truly can challenge their absolutism and despotism. They are aware 
that absolutism and despotism is a shirk. There is no two about it. Despotism is shirk. As Pharaoh, the Pharaoh, told his people, what you believe is what I want you to believe. As the Quran describes Pharaoh, Quran says what about Pharaoh? The Egyptian Pharaoh. Why does the Quran tell us the story of the Egyptian Pharaoh? Because the Pharaoh was a despot and as a despot, he was Mufsudun Fil Ard. He was a corrupter of the earth. Any despot is a cause of corruption on earth. Absolutely. Despotism by its very nature is a corruption. Iftatful Ard. No truth about it. No just no just despot. No good despot. A despot is a corrupter on earth. Why? Because a despot is a mush- is shirk. When there is a despot, it says, listen to me and me alone. Negated the shura. Negated justice. Negated divinity. Because by its very nature, you will worship the despot. And your thinking will only go to the limits of what the despot allows you to think. And despots very quickly realized that the the two Islams colonialism created, a quietist Islam, Islam that never resists, and a resistance Islam, the reaction to colonialism, that the they realized very quickly that the two Islams colonialism created, quietist Islam, pacifist Islam, and, and resistant Islam, that one of them is very useful for them and another is not useful at all for them. The pacifist, quietist Islam, they like. If you're a sheikh that is willing to be quietist and pacifist, and tell people to uh, come tell people obey the ruler because obey the ruler is, is obeying God. Come, you're a blessing. If you're someone who talks about justice and fairness and, and equity and social problems, you're part of the problem. This is why, and people please think of this, reflect on this. The elite in Muslim countries like Emirat and Saudi and Egypt. We're not educated in Muslim institutions. Their political awareness, their social awareness was created by colonial institutions. They were educated by colonial powers. Whether in Russia or the US or Britain, they went to these elite schools in which the professors... Those who teach there are not professors at UCLA, but they are professors that are vetted through national security means. And 99%, because I know who teaches at these naval institutions, intelligence institutions, and military institutions, 99% of these professors are thoroughly Islamophobic. And these professors are the ones who educated the military officers in Libya, in Egypt, in the Emirates, in, in Saudi, in Kuwait, even in Qatar, 
So the way they look at Islam and understand Islam is through the eyes of the colonizer. They look at resistance as futile and stupid. Only an idiot would resist. That is why the fascist nationalistic Hindu government in India doesn't bother Bin Zayed. He gives, they commit a genocide against Muslims. And what does Imarat do? Give Modi an award. Because Hindu nationalism, political Hinduism, doesn't bother him like political Islam. Sisi in Egypt is not bothered by political Judaism, is not bothered by militant Israeli groups, is not bothered by political Hinduism, is not bothered by political atheism in China, is not bothered that China massacres millions of Muslims, and what does Sisi do? He puts the Chinese flags all over Cairo. Just recently. Projecting Chinese flags even on mosques. It doesn't bother him. Because his psychology, his brain, is not the psychology of a Muslim. It's, it has been ideologically and pedagogically constructed by the colonizer, not by the colonized. That's why a bunch of Muslims die in Yemen, it doesn't bother them. A bunch of Muslims die in Libya, it doesn't bother them. A bunch of Muslims die in Palestine, it doesn't bother them. But if, what, if some white people die in Europe, now they take note. Oh my God. You can't kill white people. You can't kill the masters. You can't kill the colonizers. No, no, no. Now, now we're talking about real human beings. This is the reality we live in. That is why it kills me when I see people who should know better, who have some level of education, don't understand the disaster of Muhammad bin Salman in Saudi or Bin Zayed in the Emirat, or Sisi in Egypt. The fact that I am banned from the Islamic Center of Southern California because of Sisi in Egypt is itself to say to Allah, I don't want to hear or see or speak for the, my remaining time on this earth. Because these are supposed to be the cream of the crop. The people at the Islamic Center of Southern California are supposed to be the cream of the crop. If they are the cream of the crop, then we are truly lost. What Sisi and his likes are doing to Islam and Muslims in the heartland of Islam 
is causing damage that will last will last for centuries. I want to share with you a study that came out by the Pew Research Center. A very interesting study about European attitudes towards religion. The study documents the study documents you among other things European attitudes towards Muslims in particular. Now one of the parts of the study that I found very interesting is it asked, compared, the question was, would you accept a Jew as a member of your family as to opposed to accept a Muslim as a member of your family? The worst European country, the Czech Republic, only 12% said they would accept Muslims as a member of their family. As opposed to 51% said they will accept Jews. The best European country, the Netherlands, 88% they said we'd accept a Muslim as a member of our family, as opposed to 96% said we'd accept a Jew as a member of our family. What is very interesting is between the worst and the best, throughout the vast majority of European countries, the vast majority, the majority of the people would not accept a Muslim as a member of their family. And compared to Jews in every single European country, According to this study, people are more likely, some countries much more likely, to accept a Jew as a member of their family as opposed to a Muslim as a member of their family. Every single European country. Yet compare our discourses on anti-Semitism as opposed to our discourses on Islamophobia. Compare the sensitivity of the Israeli government towards any anti-Semitic act around the world as opposed to the sensitivity, in very big quotes, of any Muslim government, of Saudi, of the Emirates, of Egypt, of you choose the country, Kuwait, Qatar, whatever country, to any anti-Muslim act around the world. When something anti-Semitic happens, Jews are righteously outraged properly outraged Muslims well maybe we deserve it well it's complicated well you know there is these bad Wahhabis and maybe they make people hate us what is also interesting among the things 
that was asked in the study. The study clearly documents that anti-Semitism continues to be a problem in Europe, in my opinion. But even more so, that anti-Islam is Islam, anti-Muslim, as Muslims as a race, not just as a religion, is far worse a problem in Europe throughout than anti-Semitism. If you're an academic, compare the amount of studies and amount of funding you can get for doing work on anti-Semitism in Europe as opposed to trying to write anything about Islamophobia. If I go to any publisher and I say, I want to publish a book on Islamophobia, they say, there's a lot of books out there. Why? No, we don't need a new study. They would never say that about anti-Semitism. They wouldn't dare. Among the things of the study is whether religion is an important part of Europe's identity. On that list, Armenia, 82% said important. It is important that Armenia be Christian. 16% said no. On that scale, the most quote-unquote, liberal country was Latvia. 11% said Christian identity is important for Latvia. 84% said it's not important. Between the worst and the best, you know, put quotes around worst and best, what is clear is we're talking about a study that included Armenia, Georgia, Serbia, Greece, Romania, Bulgaria, Poland, Moldova, Portugal, Croatia, Russia, Lithuania, Italy, Ukraine, Ireland, Belarus, Hungary, Switzerland, Austria, Spain, Slovakia, Germany, England, Finland, France, Netherlands, Czech, Norway, Belgium, Denmark, Estonia, Sweden, and Latvia. Is that in all European countries, a strong percentage and in some European countries, a clear majority thinks religious identity is core to the identity of Europe, i.e. that Europe is Christian. Now, go back to our great Muslim leaders. They think that it is part of their liberal job Tajdeed al-Khatab al-Dini, renew Islamic discourse, to say, well, we're not really Islamic. Israel can be as Jewish as it wants. Even a sizable minority, 40% in the Netherlands, says the Netherlands has to be Christian. Approaching 50% in France. But, Germany, 34% said it's not, religion is not key to the identity. 64% said, it's, uh, 34 said it, it is important. 64 said not important. UK, 34% said it is important. 65% is not important. These are the most liberal countries. A country like Italy, 53% said Christianity is critical to the Italian identity and 45% said, no, it's not critical to Italian identity. My point is, 
is that religion, even in the West, is a key component. It is not gone. It has not disappeared. And yet, turn the gaze to the Muslim world. Where are we? We apologize for being Muslim. We apologize for our Muslim identity. We apologize for having a historical identity or an ethical identity that is anchored in the Quran and in the Prophet I need to close. So I'm going to close with this because I would be quite remiss if I don't. The Muslim world last week, actually last Juma, lost a very important man, a very important scholar, a very important friend, Dr. Muhammad Amara. Muhammad Amara was not just a great scholar, but Muhammad Amara was also a great human being. This man is prominent. He's he's part of the, the, the council for of scholars in Egypt, but this man, in all the years I've known him, never made me feel once that I am inferior to him or that he speaks down to me. So many years, he would come visit me, when I'm, especially when I visited Egypt, he would come to visit me in Egypt and you would not, you sit and, you, and he talks to you for hours with great humility. He lived and died, published over a hundred books, never owned new furniture, never owned a car. I would beg him to send him a driver to pick him up because I didn't want him to take public transportation. Because when I was ill, he would come. He would want to come see me. So I say, I'll let my driver come, go pick you up. Don't take public transportation. The the epitome of of the a man who lives for a principle, the idea of Islam, and lives with great humility, and no material wealth. Never took money from Saudi, never took money from the Emirat, never took money from the Egyptian government, and as a result, lived and died in poverty. But what underscores so much for me, subhanAllah, when I lost my hearing, one of the things I thought about, it said, alhamdulillah, that I can't go visit Egypt, because if I go visit Egypt, and I can't sit with Muhammad Amara and listen to him, it would kill me. Of course, subhanAllah, I didn't know that that same day he was on his deathbed. 
But the thing that kills me is that Muhammad Imara, this man who has edited the works of Muhammad Abdul and Afghani and Kawakibi and published them, this man who has written extensively on Islamic history, this man who is probably one of the greatest intellectual gifts this last century in Islam, was given to Islam, in Egypt, he was banned from publishing books, he was banned from writing articles, he was banned from appearing on TV, he was banned even from posting YouTube videos. Muhammad Amara, after the military coup, was banned thoroughly. Nawal al-Sadawi could appear on TV and curse the Prophet ﷺ regularly on Egyptian TV. Zift al-Bahiri could appear on the Egyptian state-run TV to impeach and impugn the companions of the Prophet and the Prophet ﷺ and the Quran every single day. And Muhammad Imara was not allowed by Sisi's government to respond. Not in print and not even on media. And still, there are Egyptians that say, Subhana Sisi, he is the great Allah. And I am banned from the Islamic Center of Southern California because of Sisi. I am fed up. I am fed up. Allah hasn't given you a brain. Don't you know that you are slaves to Fir'aun? May Allah put you in the hereafter with those who you love. May Allah put you in the hereafter with those who you love. If you love the Prophet Muhammad may you be with him. And if you love Sisi and Mubarak, may you be with them. That is my dua. Allahumma Allahumma lana. Allahumma arhamna ya Rabbil alameen. Allahumma hdina li akraba min hadha rashada ya Allah ya kareem. Allah, forgive our sins. Guide us to the better path. Guide us to your supernal beauty and sublime peace. Allah, make us grateful for what you have given us and not wait until we lose it to realize your blessings. Ya Allah. Ya Allah. Ya Allah. Inna Allah ya'amur bil'adli wal-ihsan wa ita'i bil-qurba wa inha'anil fahshai wal-munkari wal-bagh ya'aidhukum la'allakum tazakkaroon wa aqimu s-falah.